Love that. Fantastic. If you don't know those guys, the three younger guys are all brothers, and that was their grandfather they were singing with. And yeah. And they kind of refined that during the COVID lockdown. What were you doing during COVID? <laughs> we're going to uh, get into Genesis 12 in just a moment. Um, I'll be looking forward to diving into that with you this morning. But before we do that, I'd like to pray with you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of music and for the, the gift of song in which we can really celebrate and understand and worship you better. We're grateful for that gift that you didn't have to give us, but you did. We're also grateful for a country in which we can worship you freely and we can read and study your word. We're thankful for the independence that we enjoy here. So we ask right now, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide and that you would lead us and show us specifically how the things that we're about to examine apply to our lives. We would ask that you would do that in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed as you read through the stories of Scripture, there's a, a repetitive theme. And it, it's from Adam in the garden all the way to Judas in another garden. There's this, cons, this consistency of um, angst because of the way that humankind responds to God's plans. And there seems to be this threat to God's plan. In, in nearly all of the stories that you read as you work through the Bible, it looks like the promise of God is going to fail. However, in the face of those kind of threats, God remains completely faithful. He's got everything in control, and he himself enters into the saga, and he preserves the promises that he made. So as you study the Bible, you find a truth that constantly reoccurs, and the truth is this. The failures of mankind will not stop God from accomplishing His purposes. Well, once again, you're going to see that same principle come out today in Genesis 12 and Genesis 13, that all the failings of mankind can't stop God from doing what He's doing. And today's story has all the makings of a fantastic novel or a fantastic movie script but no one's making a movie out of it, but the storyline is there nonetheless. Here's a brief overview. It takes 60 seconds if you weren't here last week to catch you up. Abram, later to become Abraham, has been called out of the Ur of the Chaldees, which is a biblical term for the region that we know as the Persian Gulf. And the Persian Gulf region had a flourishing city. And in this region that Abram was in, there was culture, there were libraries, economic success, society was very developed and people were interacting with each other. Yet God called him out to a new land. And so he takes on a nomadic lifestyle and he's moving across what we call the Middle East, eventually landing in the region that's known today as Israel. So he departs and he's got his wife with him, Sarah. She's known as Sarai at that time. And he's got his nephew Lot and he's got his father and his father Tehran, and they go to this region known as Haran, and it's what we think of today as Turkey. They settle there for 15 years, and within Turkey, his father dies, and then they move on down to Israel. So he stops briefly in this region known as Shechem and builds an altar there to God and worships God because God reveals himself to him once again. And then he moves to a region known as Bethel, and he builds another altar to God. And you find that Abram, along this period of time, is really 
truly seeking the heart of God. He's not perfect, but he's really growing in his relationship with God, and he's maturing in the process. And then there's this unanticipated set of circumstances that pop up, and that's where we pick up in Genesis 12, verse 10. There's a severe famine that enters the land. We find that in the very beginning of verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram decides to leave the land of promise and journey south towards Egypt. And at this point, you'd want to give him a gold star because the gold star would be that many people, when they encounter difficulties in their life, they're tempted to retreat and go back to the thing that's familiar, go back to the safe place. But Abram doesn't go back to the land of the Ur of the Chaldees. He doesn't even go back to Haran, even though there's a famine. He does what he thinks he's supposed to do, and he moves down towards Egypt. Read with me the rest of verse 10. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. But you're going to discover that God didn't tell him to go there. He didn't stay where he was at in the land of promise. He decides to take a new adventure. Now check that. God himself has led him from the Ur of the Chaldees to this land of promise. He's appeared to him, which must have been incredibly reassuring after coming out of the desert and making his way into Israel. We can identify with what Abram's doing here, though, because there's times in our life when it seems like God has departed. It seems like when the famine comes into our lives, we've got to come up with a solution in order to get out of the situation. So apparently, Abram feels forgotten in this moment, but you can't trust your feelings in relationship to God because your feelings will betray you. So here in Genesis 12, you find that the land of milk and honey is becoming a wasteland due to this famine. And it's so severe that the writer of Genesis, we believe that to be Moses, uses this word kabod. It's the only Hebrew word in your notes this morning, the only one you'll see up on the screen. It, it says to be heavy or burdensome. So the famine is so severe, it's like a weight on Abraham's shoulders. So here's the issue. You got a, a real historical figure with a massive household. Lots of people work for him. Lots of livestock. And he doesn't know what to do other than to go to where there is no famine. And it's so severe, he believes he needs to come up with his own plan to fix it. Because Abram's faith has not yet matured to the point where he trusts God no matter the circumstances. That's why he comes up with his own strategy. He hears there's a famine not in the land of Egypt, so he chooses to go there until the famine passes. But when Abraham and Sarah arrive in Egypt, they find that they're stepping once again right back into pagan territory. Go with me to the next verse, verse 11. It came about when he came near to Egypt, and this, by the way, is the border of Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know you are a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. So he's so fearful for his life, he goes into self-preservation mode. Like, we would do that. We would want to protect our own life, but he's doing it to the degree that he's willing to orchestrate a deception. It's kind of a half-truth. 
Sarai is actually his half-sister or his step-sister through some relationship you learn about in chapter 10 and chapter 11. So in truth, she is kind of related to him that way, but she's really his wife. Now in Egypt, wife abduction is a big deal. Stealing women or stealing unmarried women happens on a regular basis. It's not uncommon. As a brother, he can negotiate. But as a husband, he'd be executed. There's so many unintended consequences when we try to bring man's solution to a spiritual issue. Abram's going to learn this is going to require God's intervention, not man's craftiness. But he's still very new to this relationship with God thing. And so he leans into man's capacity. And you'll study as you follow the life of Abram that this is a theme that runs throughout his life and into his grandchildren's life. He's, he perfects this art of deception. He becomes a deceiver of people. God says don't do those kind of things. When you come up against hard circumstances, you've got to trust me. Let me remind you what Proverbs chapter 3 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean in your own under, into your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge Him. He will make your path straight. Maybe you're going through that right now. You're not sure which way to turn. I don't know what to do next. God says, hello, pay attention. You're in relationship with me. Lean into me, not your feelings. Well, that requires a lot of patience. It requires a lot of trust. Let's contrast that to how Abram responded. Verse 14, it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. If you'll grant it, I'm going to take you on a slight rabbit trail. Well, even if you don't grant it, I'm going to take you on a slight rabbit trail. June 1st, 1954, an ad appeared in the Wall Street Journal. I'm going to put the actual wording of the ad for you up on the screen. As you read that, you understand that was a big mistake. They're advertising the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you're not familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, I'll fill you in in just a moment. But the advertisement appeared in the back of the Wall Street Journal in this area where there were listings. There was just a little bitty ad. So I'm going to put the image up for you of the actual ad of the Wall Street Journal. That's where it appeared in the back page. And this guy's listing the four scrolls that are remaining of the seven scrolls that were found, get this, for $250,000. That'd be like buying Alaska from the Russians for $7 million, which we did, by the way. <laughs> Two cents an acre, right? Who would sell the Dead Sea Scrolls for $250,000? They didn't know what they had. And this guy who had acquired them in the Middle East, he was able to sell three of them, and he thought, well, I'll go to America with them. Maybe somebody there would want them. So he goes for the most expensive newspaper, goes to the Wall Street Journal, and puts the ad in. And let me just fill you in a little bit on the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you're not familiar with them. When they were found in the Qumran Valley, obviously there was great excitement, but people didn't really know what they were. They later found that they dated to 200 years before Jesus. And they were a complete copy of the Bible, of the Old Testament, except for the book of Esther. What it did for scholars around the world is they realized the Bible that you hold in your hands today, it's the real deal. 
The Dead Sea Scrolls verified that there hadn't been a change over the course of time. People didn't take words and add words or sentences or paragraphs. What they had had 200 years before Jesus is the same thing that you have in your hands today. And the Dead Sea Scrolls validated that. Well, among all those vases that were found in that cave in the Qumran Valley, there was not just the scrolls that were the Old Testament. There were commentaries, commentaries that people had written in ancient times about things like the book of Genesis. Well, we have an excerpt this morning about this incident with Abram interacting with Pharaoh that comes from those commentaries. Let me put it up on the screen for you. And there's misspellings in here. It's not mine. It's just the linguistics of the person who did this 200 years before Jesus. It reads this way. The men returned to Pharaoh and described Sarah's features. Beautiful face, supple hair, lovely eyes, pleasant nose. Apparently that was a big deal. <laughs> Radiant face. He continued on describing her shape, perfect hands, and everything down to her long and delicate fingers. The men rated her far higher, I assume the word than is supposed to be there, all other women. Hearing this and then seeing Sarah, the Pharaoh wanted her and took her for his wife. Archaeologists verify that there was indeed a migration of people in 2000 BC to 1900 BC of people leaving the northern regions of what we know today as Israel and coming down into Egypt because of a famine. Pharaoh Kanunhotep, when they excavated his tomb around 1900 BC is when he reigned in that dynasty, he writes about it and they found more information in his gravesite about these individuals flooding into the Nile River region because it was so fertile there. Take that rabbit trail information and just set it aside for a second. Abram's initial lack of faith that God would carry him through leads him to fear. And that fear leads to self-preservation. And that self-preservation led to lies, and the lies led to conspiracy. And then his conspiracy is found out at the border. And so the report goes from worker to worker at the border, to their superiors, to the royal court. The Bible actually records that it went from the royal court to the princes, from the princes to the actual ears of Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh heard, we found a woman at the border and she's of exceptional beauty. She's phenomenal. The commentaries I've read indicate that even though she's 65 years of age, the appearance is that she looked like she was 28 to 30 years of age. She was aging that slowly. And Pharaoh wants her. And he has no need to bargain, he just takes her. Now, the queens are held in really special reverence in Pharaoh's court. Royal women are given incredible treatment. They have their own indoor swimming pools, their own gardens, lush vegetation. Servants, they'll wait on them hand and foot. The pharaoh of this region actually put the image of Nefertiri into his sarcophagus because he revered his queens that highly. So Sarah, Sarai, is now in Pharaoh's mansion. And Abram's fear is well-founded. 
Now his deception has placed the matriarch of the Jewish nation, not to mention the great, 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 several times removed grandmother of Jesus. That person is in enormous danger, and it's jeopardizing all the promises of the Abrahamic covenant that God has committed to. Verse 16. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Now, this is ironic. Not only are Abram's worst fears realized, his wife is behind the walls of the royal palace. He ends up getting a reward for providing his wife to Pharaoh. And it mentions very specifically the sheep, the oxen, the male servants, the female servants. And the list goes on to such a degree, you might look at it and think, wow, this guy hit the lottery. Until you understand what's being listed there is the bride price. It's the bridal price that's referred to in the Old Testament. And Abram is powerless to undo this mess. So here comes God, verse 17. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Another set of commentaries, nothing to do with the Dead Sea Scrolls, is called the Midrash. And different rabbis would make commentary about things in the Old Testament specifically. The Midrash indicates that what happened here was that Pharaoh's house it became infested with boils and skin lesions the whole palace was infected, except Sarah. Sarah's the only one that doesn't have this problem. And so Pharaoh is intelligent enough to say, aha, that's why we got the wrong woman in here. And so he goes back after Abram. But note this before we get to the next verse. Even though Abram is guilty of sin, God still comes to his aid. And he does that because God's commitment that all the earth would be blessed through the line of Abram is that crucial. So verse 18, then Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him with his wife and all that belonged to him. If you have your Bible open this morning, you might even want to circle that phrase that's repeated several times in the story, all that belonged to him. Moses wanted us to know that. There's an important reason for that being repeated. Abram's lack of faith and his lack of knowledge of God's character takes him away from where he's supposed to be in the promised land which leads him into sin. And so he's demonstrating that he's got more confidence in his ability to lie than in the power of God. Even to the degree that an ungodly Pharaoh like the king of Egypt has to rebuke him for his deception. See, Pharaoh could have had him tortured and then had him executed. But after experiencing the power that's associated with Abram, he wants him out of his realm like yesterday. Get this guy out of here. So under guard, they lead him and all of his possessions right to the border again. Verse 1 of chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him. There it is again. And Lot with him. 
So the, earlier this week, I was thinking through this story. I've studied this over the years, and I've really never stopped to think about this reality. I'll ask you the question, how long do you think Abram's in the doghouse with Sarah? <laughs> right? Like, I can't believe you let them take me. I'm thinking maybe that became a thorn between the two of them. I'm not sure, but I'm kind of reading into that. See, you might conclude, especially if you're a casual reader of the Bible, that what happened to Abram wasn't all that bad. Pharaoh gave Abram a lot of wealth, and God saved Sarai, and Abram gets to start all over again. So what's the big problem? I know this principle to be true. Prosperity in someone's life doesn't always indicate proper action. In other words, prosperity that someone's experiencing isn't always the blessing of God. Here, the prosperity is gained through deception. And the increase in possessions, it leads directly to the conflict with Lot. And it forces, as the two households come together, that they have to separate, and ultimately, Lot ends up in Sodom. And then there's this. We're told that he was given male servants and female servants, female servants from Egypt, one of whom was named Hagar, with whom Abram had a child by the name of Ishmael. And God sends Ishmael out, and he says to Abram, that son is going to be like a wild donkey to you, and then becomes the father of the Arab nation. Jacob has the line of Israel coming from him, and Israel and Arab nations fight for centuries back and forth, and it all comes right from this moment in time when he gets female and male servants into his household. Everything that Abram receives in Egypt later causes him trouble. Hagar brought division to their home and to their nation. And then on top of that, having a taste of Egypt, Lot begins measuring life standards by Egypt and what he saw there according to chapter 13, and that leads to his downfall and the destruction of his family. So you should be noticing it's not just the strife that's taking place there. It's also the embarrassment that Abram is now facing in front of his entire household, that the Pharaoh has rebuked him for lying. And then to add on top of that, the biggest issue. What if Sarah had permanently become part of Pharaoh's realm? What happens to the promise of God then? Now hold that. Previously, back in the promised land, when he's back in Canaan, he's been worshiping God. He's been building altars. He's separated himself from pagan corruption. But with this lack of knowledge of God's character, he fails to trust. And so he walks into an even more threatening situation in Egypt. That's why I said earlier what I said. Faith is not based on feeling, because your feelings will betray you every time. Yes, emotions are involved. We're not robots. God doesn't expect us to be robots. But true, maturing faith is obedience to the Word of God. That's why Romans 10 says what it does. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. When you know God's Word, that's what you root your obedience in. 
So God spoke with Abram. He told him what he would do for him. He told him what he would do through him. In turn, all Abram had to do is obey God. Now, the reality for us, as we look at a story like this, we, we would say we can identify with some of it, but we can't identify with this really big issue. And this big issue is this. Most of us are not called to leave our safety net. Most of us have not been asked to uproot and reestablish in a new territory. But the challenges that we face day in and day out are just as real. Sometimes, seems like more often than not, serious problems arise in the home, on the job, in social relationships, and it leaves us wondering, why? And typically we look up and we say, why? Like, God, what are you doing to me? I know, I've been there, I can identify with those same emotions. But we have to remember in the midst of that why is the opportunity to recognize we're being tested in those moments. And in the midst of those testings, the important question is not, how do I get out of this? How do I get out of this famine that's come into my life? The important question is, God, what do you want me to get out of this? In other words, learning to go deeper with Jesus absolutely produces endurance. That's what James wrote. James wrote chapter 1, remember that? It says this in verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is painting an incredible picture here. He says, you know what God does? God weds together faith and obedience. He puts them together like two sides of the same coin. And it's reminding us that when things get tough in our life, that's not the time to bail. That's the time to go deeper with God and allow Him to prove Himself faithful. As I studied this over the years, I've come to this conclusion. Abram would have been far safer in a famine in God's will than in Pharaoh's palace out of God's will. So ultimately, he has to come back to where he began. He has to come back to where he failed, back to where he started in the promised land. But what you're going to notice now is he's going deeper and he's maturing in his walk. And like I said, in your walk with God, you're going to face tests. It comes on a regular basis, it seems like. But he allows these things in order to grow us and develop us. And typically, they arrive in three very familiar patterns. Let me show you the way the three arrived in Abram's life. There's the test of circumstances, there's the test of people, and there's the test of things. And you'll see that I associated an F with him on the first two. When it came to circumstances, he got an F on that first one, Genesis 12. And when you come to the second one, when you see that he encountered issues with people, he failed on that one. But what about the issue of things? Before we answer that, know this going into it. Scripture indicates that these tests that God allows us to go through, they're like refining of gold in a foundry. Peter writes about that. He says, when I go through these fires, when I go through these testings, I know I'm going to come out the other side like gold. And Job writes about it. Look with me on the screen, Job 23.10. But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. I can speak to that because I earned my way through college by working in foundries, spending times during the summer pouring molten steel. 
And when we were delivered the molten metal that came out of the furnace, typically it'd be glowing orange, just like you've seen in the documentaries, except boiling on the top was the slag or the impurities. And as a person who worked in there, I had to endure the, the incredible heat, usually 115 to 120 degrees inside the foundry. And then as closer you got to the molten metal, the hotter it would get, but you had to pull the slag off the top or the impurities in order to reveal the pure metal that was behind it. That's what Job's talking about. When I've gone through these tests, I'm going to come forth pure. What I know is that God allows these trials to purify our faith and remove the slag. He does both at the same time, but also a third component as a witness to others because people are watching us when we go through these hard times. They're witnessing what we're walking through. Uh, not every bad situation is delivered to us by God. Sometimes it's the consequences of bad choices. And sometimes it's the consequences of bad people in our life. But even in those, and I'm going to say especially in those, as we're learning these hard lessons, God, mark this in your Bible, God never gives up on us. Say amen if you agree. He never does, exclamation point. God doesn't give up on us. That's why He's growing us. He's working on us. But add to that this reality. God knows you better than you know you. And He knows what level, or I would say what kind of faith that you actually have. But we don't. That's the problem. We think we're further along than we are. We don't actually have a very good gauge on how mature or immature we really are. God knows what we can handle, though, and He knows what we can't handle. That's why the writers in the New Testament says He's never going to test you beyond what you can take, but He is going to test you. So the only way to advance in God's school of faith is actually to be refined through the testing. Well, you're going to see Abram is now going to be working on a graduate level degree. Watch with me, verse 2 of chapter 13. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. The track in this, he's retracing his steps. The same road that he came down to Egypt on, he's going back on. The same watering holes, the same resting places, the same places to pasture his animals, only to get right back to where he started. Let's bear down on this phrase so we understand what's going on here. Abram was very rich. Mehod kabad. And I told you there's one Hebrew word in your notes this morning. This word is repeated again. This is the same word that was just used associated with the famine in the land. But now it's being used to be associated with Abram and his wealth. See, previously it was the land that was heavy with famine. It was severe. But now Abram's the one who's got the weight on him. It's heavy on him, the wealth that God has blessed him with. That's where the phrase actually comes from. He's loaded. That's loaded, loaded with wealth to the point where it's actually a burden on him. 
It's got so much livestock that that's the first thing listed. If you look at your Bible, maybe you have it open. The first thing it lists is his livestock, then it says silver, then it says gold, because it's in a descending order. The greatest amount of his wealth is in livestock. Well, a sheik of average wealth at this period of time, if they had 200 tents, they were considered wealthy. And if they had a thousand camels and a thousand goats, they were considered like they were really doing very well. Well, Abram is very rich. He's way beyond that. We know for sure that he has at least 300 male servants because they go with him to battle. So his tents are spread across the countryside, and he's got so much cattle that the land can't hold them. But watch verse 4 of chapter 13. Abram called on the name of the Lord. Have you noticed as you've worked through this that Moses doesn't record anything about an altar or about worship while he was in Egypt? If Moses is the author of Genesis, and he knows this information that's been passed down, he doesn't record anything about Abram while he's in Egypt worshiping or building an altar. Why is that? Most likely because he's in this place of disobedience. It's very hard to worship when you're in that place of disobedience. So verse 3 I'm looking at as a geographical return, but verse 4, there's the spiritual return, and he builds an altar to God. See, he's been coming back to where he got off track, and he's renewing his commitment to God, and he's apologizing for the failure, and he takes the first opportunity to build an altar because he's so thankful for the deliverance that's come his way. It's a good point to ask ourselves a question. Could God have delivered Abram through the famine if he had stayed in the promised land? Absolutely. Absolutely, God is very capable of doing that. So, even though God is great enough, even though God is good enough to bring good even when we disobey, there's still a cost involved. Abram has lost standing in his community. He's lost standing before the eyes of all of his employees, not to mention what Sarah has endured. That's why Paul writes about this sin that so easily entangles us. It wraps up around our feet and makes us fall on our face. But that's not all. How many fights have taken place within a family that have been caused by the misuse of money and the misuse of possessions? Families routinely go to court to battle out those issues. People who used to enjoy each other are no longer enjoying each other. They're just after each other's throat just to get money. Well, let's go back to those three tests I said that will come along. Circumstances, people, things. How's Abram doing now with this third test of the issue of things? And this is not an easy one because it involves a lot of land and a lot of wealth. Verse 5. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while they were dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. Well, let's just state the obvious. 
God's blessing on Abram is so overwhelming, the land can't hold them. Tents are all over the place, employees, livestock. He's been that blessed of God, and this management issue has come up. There's a conflict between the upper-level servants who have oversight of the herds. They just have to trust me. On the Hebrew language, it says there's this constant chiding going back and forth. There's insulting. There's arguments, people calling their mothers certain names, and lots and lots of complaining. So Moses keeps reminding us of something else. He keeps reminding us that when they're there, the Canaanites are in the land, and then he goes a step further, and he says the Perizzites are there too. Now, the Perizzites are a subculture of the Canaanites, and they got some incredibly bad behavior. They influence Sodom. Their sexual behavior is off the charts, and, and they're just incredibly inhumane individuals. They're bloodthirsty, horrible behavior. That's all part of this drama. Even as all of this is unfolding in the background, we get a front row seat to this maturation process as God's growing and developing and maturing Abram. Verse 8, so Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Now, that's a normal way of speaking in the ancient world. Individuals would face the north. This is north here in Michigan. I'm looking this way. And so, if you're facing to the north, the west is on your left. The east is on your right. That's how California ended up being called the left coast. It's a very familiar language here that dates back to the ancient world. Verse 8 and verse 9 is revealing a heart change. There's something in the disposition here of Abram in which humility has now made its place into his life. And he opens up the land and he says to him, take what you please, Lot. Whatever you want, go for it. Abram has the right to demand the status of the patriarch. He's the most senior member of the family. He's the one whom God has communicated with. And yet he's willing to give Lot first choice. Now, this is a really consistent principle that you find mentioned throughout the New Testament, especially when Jesus was talking about how we treat other people. Look at this reference in Philippians 2, verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. It's not wrong to look out for your own interests, but also on the same level, be looking out for other people. That takes a really mature person to do that. That takes a really mature Christian to do that. That takes a really mature follower of God to say, whatever you want. So Abram is senior in years, he's senior in possession and in relation to God, and he's got God's blessing on him, yet he makes the proposal which tells you that he learned a huge lesson in Egypt. He's not attaching his future success to his strategy. He's beginning to understand that God is truly with him. No matter what, God's got him. So that means there's a great difference between the riches of Abraham and the wealth of Lot. Abraham has wealth, but the wealth does not have Abram. 
Lot has wealth, but the wealth has Lot. And both are really very, very wealthy, but they both have a completely different outlook. And Abram knows there's no sense in fighting over this. God's going to take care of both of us, which is such a contrast because in Egypt, Abram thought that he had to manipulate the circumstances in order to gain the upper hand. And here he's just demonstrating a lot of wisdom by saying, I'm willing to let God look out for my interest. We're coming into the very end of this now for today that sets us up for next week, and there's this decision that needs to be made, and it's going to be made from some very high geographical land. Look with me at the next verse, verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. So Lot is thinking about Lot, and he immediately accepts Abraham's proposal because he lacks the wisdom to really give the first option to Abram. So he seizes the advantage, and he's not lifting up his eyes to heaven. He's lifting up his eyes to the thing that he wants, the lush valley of the Jordan that's in front of him, and he stops there. So it isn't that this choice leads him off path. His heart is already there. He sees it, and he wants it. But then there's this little nugget that Moses throws us in there. And in verse 10, it says, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm so tempted to go into that this morning, but I'm going to save that. That's coming up in August. We need some time to build and understand why that statement is made and what happens there. So he says it's before the wrath of God. If you get some time later today, go back and read these verses because Moses is giving a description of what it actually looked like then. And he said, it's like the Garden of Eden. It's like Egypt around the Nile River. It's incredibly lush and beautiful. And then he throws in verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. And he's just throwing it out there for what's coming later. God's going to deal with him because he's more than just a little irritated, but then Moses brings us right back to the story again. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Lot settled where Lot wanted. Abram is settling where God wants him to be. Northward, Assyria, the Babylonian Empire, where Rome will be ultimately. Southward, the Egyptian Empire. Eastward, all the way towards Asia. Westward, the Mediterranean Sea. You, you look at the maps of Israel today, it's just a, a little dot on the map. But during the reign of Solomon, their borders were much, 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 much bigger. Wherever Abram saw, God says, I'm going to give that to you. This is something only God can do, as you're going to discover. And he commits to another major promise, verse 16, and here's where we end it today. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, 
then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. As we step out of chapter 12 and chapter 13, you're seeing a major action of God unfolding before your eyes. God had indicated that for those who bless Abram, he would bless them. And for those who would curse him, he would curse them. But he would also bless Abram independently, abundantly. So what you're seeing is the Abrahamic covenant is already in motion. As you look back on what you learned today, God is faithful all the time, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. That's your God. And then additionally, now God has made an amazing promise. A childless man in his 80s is going to be a daddy. Like, how many people here are in their 80s and say, I would love for a baby to wake me up at 2 in the morning? <laughs> Nobody in their 30s wants that. And God says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to make you so abundant that you will be like the stars of the sky. So what's Abram's response to that? And there he built an altar to the Lord. And you've seen this transition in maturity taking place after his testing. He's gone through the really hard stuff, and God has proven him. And you're watching the character of this individual develop as he knows the character of God. And he's realizing now he doesn't have to control the situation. If he's walking with God, God's in control. So Abram failed these first two tests, and he did that because he le leaned into man's wisdom instead of faith in God's Word. But when he's given the third test, he, he passes it with great distinction because he let God take control. I just want to state the obvious to close this. There are no benefits to disobedience. You track it all the way through Scripture. The benefits come from obedience to God. So when we stay with God and we stay with God's ways and your knowledge of His will, no matter what the circumstances may be, He will be with you and He will carry you through that. But if you're in this place where you've disobeyed God and you've stepped outside of His will, maybe even to the degree that God is disciplining you, I just want to encourage you, go back to the place where you got off track Restore the relationship. Get things back in order again. Abraham went back to the place of beginning, and he got a fresh new start, meaning this. No failure in your life has to be a permanent failure. In God's school of faith, he will forgive the failure. And that's why the writers of Scripture say this. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and finish it out with me, church, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That sounds like a brand new beginning, right? That sounds like God giving a fresh new start. Let's thank Him for that, that reality. Father, we praise You and thank You for the promise that You made to us. As we come to You, 
and acknowledge where we fail, you'll cleanse us and you'll give us a fresh new beginning. So we pray this morning, right now, wherever you're working in the hearts of individuals, that you would work especially in, in this area, that we would yield that to you and that we would allow ourselves to have a new beginning in you. We're grateful, Father, that you're willing to give that. Your mercies are new every morning. And we're so thankful. Thank you that we know this is true because of what Jesus did for us, that we have no fear of being rejected because of the amazing grace of our God. So we go out these doors this morning praising you and thanking you for new beginnings. And I pray for your blessing on this church as we do that. Send us out now, Father, in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Have a great week, New Hope.